All right, sound is speeding. We are recording. Cool. All right, let's begin. Either they don't know, don't show, I don't care about what's going on in the hood. Yes, 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 everybody. Welcome, 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 welcome to Adventures in Black Cinema. My name is Desmond Thorne. I will be your host and your film aficionado for the day. Uh, so excited to be here per usual. As a reminder, if it's your first time here, what I do in my life outside of hosting this wonderful podcast is um, I am a filmmaker. I am a writer, director. I also, I direct many things, not just film. I also have directed stage before and all of that. I'm also a film programmer. I program films at a film festival called New Fest, New York's LGBTQ Film Festival. Um, and I'm also a son. Uh, we are, in fact, right back where we started from. Right back to where we started from. We are back at my mama's house. Woo! Yes, this is where we started the podcast back in like June or July or something, where it was just a seed of an idea and it has become a fully fledged thing. And it's appropriate that we're back where we started from this very cyclical nature of life uh, because this is the last episode of 2020. I can't believe it. I can't believe 2020 is almost over, that we're still dealing with the bullshittery of COVID-19 and our fucking bullshit government. Um, And it's also crazy that it's the last episode of 2020 because I'm just so thankful for all of your wonderful support over these past few months since the summer. You know, all the DMs I've gotten about how much y'all like the show and, you know, how much you appreciate the show and, you know, just all of the love, the listening, the feedback, just every single bit and piece of it, the team, Everyone, um, I'm just so appreciative of all of y'all. So thank you, thank you so much for taking this ride along with me. And though this is the last episode of 2020, we will obviously be back in 2021. And it's also appropriate that uh, we are back at my mom's house because this week we are discussing one of her favorite movies of all time, I believe. I don't want to speak for her, but I feel as if this is her feeling um, because this week... We will be taking an adventure in Angels and Advent, and we will be discussing the film The Preacher's Wife. But first, some gay shit. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. 
So if you are unfamiliar with this segment that I have on the show called Some Gay Shit, welcome to Some Gay Shit. Uh, Some Gay Shit is a segment that I'll do on the show every once in a while in which I talk about some gay shit that's currently happening in the media or... I relate something in the culture to being gay. So this week, I'm going to talk about fucking Christmas. Because Christmas is actually, I think, the gayest holiday that we have. A lot of gays will cite Halloween as um, Christmas for gays or something like that. But, like, that's a redundant statement because Christmas is so fucking gay already. You know, um, first of all, there's the vibe. I mean, the vibe is one of celebration, cute shit, constantly singing, constantly singing, giving gifts, looking cute, acting cute. Uh, decking the halls. Who the fuck else is decking halls but us? But the gays. Um, and there's also gay in a lot of song lyrics for the holiday. I mean, yes, is it about Jesus? And is it about a lot of things within the realm of religion? And is this a world that, you know... Is this a world in which gay people are not accepted by many sects, many groups of Christian people? Absolutely. But you can't take Christmas away from us. I mean, the red and green cups at Starbucks. And you also, 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 also have so many queer icons with Christmas songs. I mean... Destiny's Child, Eight Days of Christmas. Eight day of Christmas, my baby gave to me a pair of Chloe shades and a diamond belly ring. On the seventh day of Christmas, my baby gave to me a nice back rub in it. You have Madonna's Santa Baby. Santa Baby, slip the stable under the tree for me. You got Kylie Minogue doing some Christmas shit. I mean, if you name a queer icon, they probably have some Christmas shit, and if they don't, it's in the works. It's coming soon, baby. So in here, speaking of queer icons with Christmas music and how gay Christmas is, who is the queen of Christmas? Who is the queen of Christmas? Like, (laughs) honestly, over the years, this has become less and less of a holiday about Santa Claus and more and more of a holiday about Mariah Carey herself. Um, And it's fun that we're talking about The Preacher's Wife today because, you know, also starring a queer icon, Whitney Houston, who also, uh, through doing the soundtrack for this, has a Christmas album as well. And it's very good. And, you know, I Believe in You and Me, great song. Whitney's Joy to the World, great song. But nothing that we discuss will ever hold a candle to All I Want for Christmas is You. This song once played at a gay pride party that I was at in June, in the middle of the fucking summer, on a rooftop in Hell's Kitchen. Um, And... This song came on and people still lost their fucking minds. Like, we still sang every single word. It was just a joyous moment. I mean, also, please, if you think you're tired of this song, you think you don't like this song, I urge you, I beg you, go on your favorite streaming service right now, grab a good pair of headphones, or if you have the shit on CD or record, like, more power to you, because you're going to be listening to this shit in, like, dope-ass quality. Get some headphones, 
and listen to All I Want for Christmas is You in a good pair of headphones. Let me tell you, you are so used to hearing this song on the radio or on, you know, some device that really isn't giving you everything that this song has to offer. Listen to this song in a good pair of headphones. You will hear how fucking sick the production is on this song. Christmas for a reason. It's an excellent fucking song. Um, And, you know, we always talk about Mariah and Whitney in comparison to each other in terms of divas, same period of time. You know, they both sang the song for the Prince of Egypt. And, you know, if Whitney was still alive, there would absolutely be a versus between Mariah and Whitney. But I have to say, in terms of Christmas jams, Christmas tunes, we're going to talk a lot about Whitney and a lot of her Christmas tunes today. Um, But we can't talk about Christmas without talking about how fucking gay it is and also how much we love Mariah Carey, especially at this time, and how much she also fucking owns the holiday. So, this Christmas time, thank a gay and thank... Mariah Carey, thank you. You are here for one reason, one reason only. To learn, to learn, to learn, to learn. So yes, let's get into The Preacher's Wife. So The Preacher's Wife was directed by Penny Marshall. It was released in 1996 and Per usual, here's a little summary if you haven't seen the movie, or if you don't know anything about it. Um, in this remake of The Bishop's Wife, which was a film from 1947, which is also very good, with an all-black cast, we meet Reverend Henry Biggs, played by Courtney B. Vance, who is excellent as always. I mean, this man, just like I always say with these black Yale School of Drama actors, like, so good, so wonderful, and also blessed by being married to the Angela Bassett. So Henry Biggs, the reverend, the preacher, is having a lot of trouble keeping up with his life in the church, his local community, and his family life, especially when it comes to his wife, Julia, played by Whitney Houston. And she's so lovely in this movie, you know. Like I was saying in the Waiting to Exhale episode, there's something about Whitney, like many singers who act in films, they really come alive when they are allowed to sing, you know? When they play a role in which it is natural for them to sing, and she gets to do that in this movie. And uh, so she has a glow about her in this, and it's it's really nice to see that. Um, so one day, Henry, the Reverend, prays to God for help, and help comes down in the way of a charming angel named Dudley, played by Denzel Washington. And we'll talk a little bit about how lovely I find Denzel Washington in this movie, as we're going to talk about some angels during this episode. So as Dudley tries his best to help a reluctant Henry... Things get a little complicated when Dudley begins to fall in love with Julia. Hoo, 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 hoo. Yes, yes, 
things get a little crazy when an angel falls in love with this woman. So this film also stars Jennifer Lewis, who is for some reason playing Whitney Houston's mom, even though they're only about six years apart. Um, And even though that's strange, Jennifer Lewis is so good. She's so fucking funny as always. You know, there's a part where they're talking about um, Gregory Hines' character. And (laughs) she says to Henry, who's Courtney B. Vance's character, she says to Henry, he's so oily you can fry chicken off that man's smile. Gregory Hines is great. He plays the antagonist of the film. And, um, you know, when we talk about some angels today, we're also going to definitely talk about, you know, the people in this film that we have lost at this point. And that includes quite a few people, actually. Um, And Gregory Hines is just such a legend. And like I said, we're going to talk about him later. Um, So we also have Loretta Devine in this movie, who, where is Loretta Devine's leading starring role. I want, if there has been one or two, I want there to be more of them. Loretta Devine is one of those actors who just lights up the screen whenever she appears, whenever she shows up. She plays Henry's secretary. She is just so amazing, so funny. She's only in like maybe three or four scenes, but she makes such an impression. She's just really great. Um, Honestly, in quite a few movies that we've covered so far that she's been in, you know, this and Down in the Delta come to mind because obviously she has a much larger role in Waiting to Exhale. But in this and Down in the Delta, it's just like, great actors are the ones that can really make it work and make an impression on you in those couple of scenes, you know? If you have all this time and all these scenes to make it work, yes, that is also difficult, but... You know, you have more time. You have more time. You have more of an arc to build this character. Um, You just have more time in general to really establish yourself. But these people who come in for a couple of scenes and just knock it out the park, like, they deserve their roses and their flowers. They deserve everything. And Loretta Devine is certainly one of those people. Uh, We have Lionel Richie in this movie making his screen debut as an actor who also plays a musician. He is kind of attractive in this movie, I have to say. Um, For a second, I was like, oh, who is that? He looks familiar. And I was like, oh, it's Lionel Richie. Because I usually don't find him cute. And I did find him a little cute in this movie. Uh, We have Paul Bates in this movie, who you would definitely recognize from Coming to America. He's great. He plays a little love interest for Loretta Devine and has this cool-ass bus, this, like, charter bus that he drives through the community to help and pick people up and stuff. And... Last but not least, we have Justin Pierre Edmond, who plays Jeremiah, who is the child in this movie. And I'm pretty sure I've said this before a couple of times. Child actors are hit or miss for me. I understand they can't all be like Lindsay Lohan in The Parent Trap. They can't all be like Brandon Hammond. Um, Justin Pierre Edmond has many great moments in this. Many funny moments as the child, including when he is on (laughs) this little fucking 
uh, I don't even know what you call it. You know those horses that are outside of stores that you can put a quarter in and they move. You can ride them. They're electronic. You get the picture. They look very carnival-like. So he's on one of those. And uh, Whitney Houston and Denzel are talking for quite a while. And then they just cut to Justin Pierre Edmond as Jeremiah riding on this horse. And he just says, Mommy, enough. And like, that is so funny. You know, there are some parts where it just doesn't really work as well as I'm sure they wanted it to. You know, when you give a child the job of narration, it's tough. It is tough. That being said, there are elements of the way that he was that reminded me of my nephew. I feel like my nephew, if I was going to pick two characters that remind me of my nephew, it would kind of be this one and also Grogu from The Mandalorian. Grogu? Yes. Uh, <laughs> there's something old and wise about uh, my nephew, but then also something about Jeremiah. Is he just like, he's just a fucking kid, you know? And I think that's kind of why I don't want to like shit on his performance too much because he is just a kid. And I would say that a strength of this character, more than many other child characters, is he's not precocious. He's just a fucking kid. And you know, there is something great to be said about that um, when people just write children the way that they are and don't try to write an adult in a child's body. If you're trying to do that, just write an adult, you know what I mean? So, some fun facts about this film. Uh, Denzel originally wanted Julia Roberts to play Julia, I think because they were in the Pelican Brief together. Um, but later, Denzel realized that Whitney Houston would be better in the role, which is absolutely correct. I would not have liked to see Julia Roberts in this role at all. Um, Whitney turned the role down several times, saying she couldn't connect to the character, but eventually realized that she did actually connect to the aspect of church life and the love of her family. Because, as we'll get into a little bit, possibly, I don't know, uh, Whitney Houston did grow up in the church. Um, Whitney Houston definitely has like a gospel background, so I'm glad that she found that connection to this film and uh, eventually played this role. Second fun fact, not necessarily a fun fun fact, but it is a fact. Uh, according to Whitney, when she was on an episode of The Oprah Winfrey Show, her drug habits had gotten so bad at this point that there was never a day on set where she wasn't using marijuana or cocaine. And I will mention also that... Um, you know, there was a lot of production issues with this film. So many. They had issues with the weather when they went up to Portland, Maine to shoot that beautiful ice skating scene. It was too hot in Portland, Maine, which never happens in the winter, I'm sure. So that threw them off. Um, apparently, Whitney Houston did not want to sing in the morning at some point during production, so that held them back. There were some assaults and murders in some places where they were shooting. Oh my god. So, it was a production that was plagued with a lot of problems. Um, that being said, last fun fact, most of the church scenes were shot at Trinity United Methodist Church in Newark, New Jersey. Ow. New Jersey represent ow. North New Jersey represent ow. That's where I am right now. Hey, hey! Yeah, and uh, it's really dope, too, because, you know, 
Isn't Whitney from Newark? Yeah, Whitney's from Newark. So uh, I love that. I love, I mean, just the New Jersey representation in any film, specifically Northern New Jersey representation, because sometimes we don't like to um, rep uh, fucking South Jersey or quote unquote Central Jersey, whatever that is. I don't think it exists. But I love seeing North New Jersey in films. Uh, It just warms my heart. Uh, So my first experience seeing this film was back in 1996 when it was released. My parents took my brother and I to what was supposed to be a double feature of this film and the 1996 version of 101 Dalmatians starring Glenn Close at the Maplewood Theater which I just heard today is fucking closing because of COVID. It's, uh, it's really sad. That's like our local, one of the local movie theaters and the other one is also closing. But back to my first experience with The Preacher's Wife. Um, so I saw this back in 96. There was meant to be a double feature, but there were technical difficulties with one of the films, which could happen when you were showing films on celluloid. So we ended up only seeing one that day, and then the other another time, since they offered vouchers. Um, And I feel like at first I couldn't remember which one was having the technical difficulties, and I think it was 101 Dalmatians. So I think we did end up seeing The Preacher's Wife on this day, and then came back and saw 101 Dalmatians later. Both great movies. They were paired together because they're both kids' movies, obviously, but also this uh, The Preacher's Wife is a touchstone film, and 101 Dalmatians, obviously Disney. They're both owned by the same company, so they can do that. They both have mouse affiliation. So, since we first saw it in theaters, it has become a staple holiday film in our family. You know, we watch it pretty much every year. Um, And my mom also has the soundtrack to the film, and she loves it. I think the last time that I saw this movie was when my nephew was just born, and it was um, his first Christmas on Earth. He was born on December 12th, and so it was his first little little Christmas before he was aware of, 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 you know, all that. And um, I remember all of us watching it as a family, and it was such a nice little moment. And it was before um, my boyfriend at the time was coming to pick me up to have a little a little uh, Christmas, uh, you know, fun. I don't know what the fuck we were doing, but we were going to have a good time. Uh, so this movie definitely holds a special place. The soundtrack, like I said, my mom owns and played it often. Um, so let's get into this aspect of Advent for a second here. So if you don't know, Advent is basically like the four weeks or so before Christmas. And this was my favorite time of year in general because I'm a big Christmas head. I fucking love Christmas. Um, It doesn't 
feel the same way as it did when you're a kid, of course. Like, there's nothing quite like the magic of being a child and living in all that is Christmas. You know, seeing those Rankin-Bass claymation joints for the first time as a kid. You know, I still fucks with them. I'm Mr. White Christmas. I'm Mr. Snow. Like, there are still things I still do from when I was a kid, but, uh, you know, there's nothing quite like that magic of being a child during Christmas time. And um, Advent was my favorite time of going to church as well, because what you got with Advent was every sermon uh, during Advent time. So you got four sermons about you know, the story of Jesus, you know, the whole shebang with Mary and Joseph and the three wise men and King Herod and all that shit. Because honestly, this is one of the most, you know, epic and well-known parts of the Bible. And this part of the Bible is so comforting. You know, in Easter, you get to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which can be stressful in its own way, which is why... The Easter mascot is a bunny. You gotta combat that shit. A man on a cross with thorns on his head. You have to combat that somehow. You know, Christmas is so nice because they're just telling the story of this baby coming to be and how this baby is gonna save everybody one day and all this stuff. And also you get to hear it from um, different people's perspectives, I believe. Um, Or it may just honestly be the book of Matthew. I have not read that shit in a while. I haven't been to church in a minute. But I mean... There's just such a warm feeling. There's no smite. There's nothing terrible that's happening. Does King Herod want to kill a baby? Yeah, but you know it's not going to work out. So there's always this sense of hope. And I think that's something that can be rare sometimes in a church setting, which is a weird thing to say, because there are certain parts of the Bible where you're talking about God just smiting people and things like that, and people doing terrible shit, like, you know, Passover, you know, people going and killing all these Jewish babies and stuff, and, like, it's a lot. But this part of the Bible is so warm and lovely, and to get four sermons in a row about that, which I actually found to be engaging that I didn't fall asleep at, because, truth be told, I fell asleep a lot at church. And this is also when we are doing, uh... The Christmas program, which, you know, me being a young actor, I always loved being part of the Christmas program and seeing what the possibilities were going to be for the Christmas program. Because, you know, some superintendents would do things a little differently in terms of like church school, church program. And I think that's something that they really absolutely nail in The Preacher's Wife. I mean, the scenes where they're getting ready for the church program feel absolutely real uh you know kids kind of going around doing what they're told um you know our church program was a little bit more expansive than just telling the straight up like nativity story as represented in this movie but one of my favorite parts of the movie is when they're singing who could imagine a king at the end when they're actually doing this is no longer rehearsal It is the day they are on. Um, So they're singing Who Who Would Imagine a King? And the girl who's playing Mary, she has to stop because the baby uh, pees on her. 
And so she goes backstage and she gives the baby to Whitney Houston. And she's like, I can't do this anymore. I'm all wet. And Whitney Houston is like, who made baby wet, wet Jesus? Who got us a baby wet, wet for Jesus? And so Whitney Houston must save the day. And she must go out on stage and sing the song herself with the young boy. And it's a great moment. It's a touching moment. It's a funny moment. And then you get to see Whitney Houston sing. It's everything you want from this movie really all rolled into a couple minutes. And this comes right after a scene with her and Denzel. So it's like, bam, 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 boom. Bam! 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 (laughs) It's everything. I think something else that this movie nails, to be perfectly and quite honest, um, is the vibes of a black church. Which is really interesting because Penny Marshall is a Jewish woman from New York. So her frame of reference, she really had to basically rely on the people around her, like Whitney Houston, like Courtney B. Vance, like Denzel Washington, and everyone else in the cast to really bring that uh, authenticity and that realness to this movie because it feels so absolutely real. I mean, I used to be in this shit. Well, I did it one time. (laughs) I did it one time. I was in the candlelight service choir one time. Candlelight service is a service that happens, I think like a Saturday before Christmas or something like that. And then we also sing on the service that is closest to Christmas. There wasn't always a service on Christmas Day at our church because why would you need it? Um, I think it's good enough to have a Christmas service that is close to Christmas. If Christmas falls on like a Tuesday or Wednesday, I don't think everyone needs to go to church. Just have time with your family. Spend fucking time with your family. So we would do it on um, the service closest to Christmas as well as have like a little candlelight concert a an evening, I think before that, a Saturday evening. And it was lit. It was amazing. Uh, We got to sing Carol of the Bells, which is pretty much the only reason why I wanted to be part of the Candlelight Choir. And I thought it was also interesting that it was like an intergenerational choir. Um, Usually, you know, it's like the youth choir and they had all these choirs that adults were in, but youth could be part of this choir. So it was fun to be with the titans of the church choirs, the church vocalist titans. And there's also uh, a character in The Preacher's Wife who is absolutely real and absolutely part of any black church choir. This role is actually played by Sissy Houston, uh, who is Whitney Houston's mom and uh, also has so much of a background in gospel music and in the church um, as well because, you know, she raised Whitney. And... um, has a big family in the gospel music game. So anyway, like, um, there's a part where uh, Whitney Houston as Julia is trying to uh, rearrange a part of this song for the choir to break up the harmony and make it sound even fucking sicker than it already does. Um, And... Sissy Houston, as this character, as this older woman in the choir, comes through and she's like, well, why do we have to change it? I think it sounds perfectly good just as it is. And that is just like, there is always that person in 
any choir who's got to bring a little bit of the drama, a little bit of a sass, and they're usually a little bit older. Uh, nothing against older people. It's just, you know, when you are set in tradition, you don't want to change it. Uh, and I understand that. Uh, as I get older, I'm sure I will feel the same way. But again, that is one detail and one aspect that makes this black church feel so real. I mean, just the general vibe when you're walking in and you hear them singing, help is on the way. It just, you're automatically dropped into the environment, the hopefulness of the environment, the closeness of the environment, the community of the environment, even the way the pulpit is set up You know, just the dialogue that happens between the characters, the way that the kids are, it's just all stacks up and adds up to so many little details to it really representing a real black church. I also love the way the Christmas spirit is, you know, um, approached and captured in this film. And... Must I say that it is captured without having a kind of Jesus agenda on it? Yeah, is it about a preacher? Yeah, is it about an angel? Yeah, is it about the preacher's wife? Yeah, is it about a church and all that shit? But I think it's more about those values rather than you kind of walking away feeling like, well, I, I just I just have to go in my car right now and go to a church. Like, I must become a member of the church. I must you know, change my ways um, in that way, you know. I think there are a lot of great value and human lessons to be learned in this movie, um, but without a push, without an agenda to get you uh, in any kind of religious way. I think it really is just being about, like, a good person and supporting your community and finding time for your family and also um, believing in things as they come to you. I think there's a lot to learn in uh, Reverend Henry's skepticism of Dudley the Angel. And I think it's kind of a skepticism of you really getting what you want and what you're asking for and also a kind of skepticism of like the things that you feel like you deserve. I think something big that's happening for Henry in this movie that they don't harp on a whole lot, but if you know, you know. If you know, you know. I think Henry definitely has depression and he is so overwhelmed with all the things that he's given himself to do. Um, I think we've all been in that place of just extreme overwhelm. We're fucking doing too much and we don't know how to stop and we feel like we owe so much to other people and we don't give what's needed to the people who truly matter. Um, And I think that's a very big lesson in this movie. And I think that, you know, Henry being so overwhelmed and depressed may not believe that he deserves an angel to come down and to teach him this lesson, but he does. And that is very much proved within the events of this film. You know, does the fact that Dudley fall in love with his wife, does that present a little... A little issue, a little problem, a little conflict, yes. But, you know, that's the magic of movies. There's got to be a little conflict there. And who's not going to fall in love with Denzel Washington? And who's not going to fall in love with uh, Whitney Houston? I mean, it's a recipe for disaster. And if by disaster you mean love, sign me up. It's crazy how much of a good couple they make in this movie, even though you know it's got to be Whitney 
and Courtney B. Vance, uh, at the end of the day, you just love the little romance that happens between uh, Whitney and Denzel. And I think that's such a testament to them as people, their energy, their vibes, and also their performances. Uh, and speaking of Miss Whitney, let's talk a little bit about some angels. So, as we have established, Denzel Washington plays an angel in this movie, and his purpose is to help Henry essentially get his life together um, in several different ways. You know, Henry's dealing with a lot of issues. Of course, with his wife, he's dealing with the issues of not having enough money to really keep the church going and for certain repairs. Like, there's a part where the furnace busts during a choir rehearsal, which is also a great and memorable scene. Um, He is having trouble keeping up with his life. I mean, um, there's a lot on his plate. Also, there is a young man who has been accused of armed robbery in the neighborhood, uh, falsely accused of armed robbery in the neighborhood, and Henry has to help with that. So he's got a lot of shit. His stress is not unwarranted by any means. And uh, Denzel comes down as deadly, and it is one of Denzel Washington's most charming performances, which is crazy because Denzel Washington is such a charming person period he can't turn that off he's got a charisma that just oozes off the screen and anything that he does when he smiles when he speaks when he looks at you and all that is to say that he really goes kind of like above and uh beyond that in this movie as this character i mean um There's kind of a childlike, a young vibe to him because it's hinted at that he, you know, obviously the way he's appearing now as someone who's probably in his his 30s or so, um, you know, that's when he lost his life. So he lost his life as a young person. So there is a jovial, childlike um, aspect of his performance that's so much fun. He's so funny in this movie. And I think it's interesting when speaking about the role of angels in this movie, um, just about how many angels are actually in this movie. There are, there's quite a lot of death at this point uh, surrounding this film. Uh, We have two actors who have passed on and uh, the director as well. So we have Whitney Houston, who has obviously died. Um, We have Gregory Hines, who is so good in this and so good in everything, who also has passed on. You know, um, Gregory Hines, what a fucking legend. We talked about him briefly in the Waiting to Exhale episode uh, in which he plays a love interest to Loretta Devine. Uh, Another movie that Whitney Houston is also in with Courtney B. Vance's wife, Angela Bassett, who is in Malcolm X with Denzel Washington. So all these people have worked together. That's just a little side note there. But Gregory Hines, what a legend of Broadway, film, 
television. I mean, what an absolute titan. If you are unfamiliar with Gregory Hines' work, please, please, please look up Gregory Hines. Look up the shit that he's been in. Look up the movie where he plays Bojangles uh, Robinson. It is... He is truly one of a kind. And guess what? He has a brother, a queer brother who is also an insanely, insanely talented performer who, as of recording date, is still with us, um, who is still alive. And the two of them together, when you're familiar with both of their work, look up videos of them together. Oh my God, they're so talented. And because of Newfest, we had a documentary about Maurice Hines, who's Gregory Hines' older brother, uh, called Maurice Hines, Bring Them Back. And I got to talk to Maurice Hines in a Q&A over the phone. He's such a lovely person. So Gregory Hines definitely feels like an angel to me. Um, you know, any Black person who was coming through the theater game in terms of, you know, anything really... Um, is such a huge inspiration to me, which also, you know, ties into Denzel Washington and Courtney B. Vance, who also um, have played, uh, who've done a lot in theater. Another side note, speaking of connections between these people, Courtney B. Vance played the son in the original Broadway production of Fences, which Denzel Washington adapted into a film. So there we go, another connection between all these people. Um, Yeah, Gregory Hines plays the swarthy antagonist in this movie and is so good, does such a great job, just such a natural performance. I love when people play villains without the mustache twisting and you can really see what their intentions are behind what they want and what they're doing. Whether you agree with those or not is up to you and it's totally fine if you disagree with them, but the point is that these uh, actors play them in such a way that you understand them without you having to agree with them. Um, He's so great. And Penny Marshall, who is the director of the film, she actually died pretty recently. And Penny Marshall, what another legend, like Laverne and Shirley come through. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, Shlemiel, Uh, Her role in fucking uh, Hocus Pocus come through. Like, she's also just a legendary director. She directed um, A League of Their Own. Are you crying? Are you crying? There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. She directed Demolition Man. Like, oh, Penny Marshall directed Big, too. Fuck, another movie that totally, like kind of fits in this holiday vibe a bit. Yeah, what a legend. And for her to bring all of these worlds to life, ones that she was more familiar with, ones that she was less familiar with, with such finesse and beauty is like, that's a testament to being a true empath and just understanding people. And to have a production be so riled and rifled with chaos and to have the end product be this beautiful movie. Wow. Like snaps and claps to uh, Penny Marshall for just, you know, creating this wonderful world along with 
the other worlds that she had created, the other movies of hers that I am a huge fan of, like I just said, are a league of their own and big, huge fan of those movies. And, you know, she is another person who is absolutely missed on this earth and in the filmmaking world. And let's talk a little bit about Whitney Houston. I mean, we talked a bit about her in the Waiting to Excel episode. Um, Her presence is just so missed in the music industry and the entertainment industry in general. I mean, what a literal angel. I think I may have mentioned this in the Waiting to Excel episode, but I went to a... um, I went to a screening of a documentary that was about background dancers in music videos in the 1990s. And there was a Q&A with a lot of the dancers who were there. And uh, someone asked, you know, who was the coolest person that you got to work with? And they all said, you know, it was an honor working with Michael Jackson. It was such, it was so cool being with this person and this person, but the best person hands down to work with was Whitney Houston. She was such a sweetheart. And that's something that I've heard about her time and time again. And, you know, even though I mentioned something about her not wanting to, you know, sing in the morning and like, you can be a diva and be a nice person. And you can also have wants and needs and be able to express those as well. I think sometimes those kind of things seem like weird demands and like weird things to ask for. But I think in her case, she was asking for what she needed at the time in order to do a good job. And when she sings in this movie, she glows. She absolutely glows. Like I've said before, you know, a lot of singers, not all, but many singers do not make the best actors. There are definitely many exceptions to that rule. Um, But I will say something that's consistent with all of them is that when they are able to sing, when they are able to use their gift that has been given to them, oh my God, it just makes you want to melt. They are absolutely incredible. And that absolutely goes for Whitney. I mean, she absolutely just lights up the screen when she sings. That scene where she sings, I believe in you and me. It is so beautiful. It is so gorgeous. You know, talking about Christmas songs before, that's one of them that's in here. Her Joy to the World in here is really great. I mean, the whole soundtrack is super, super dope. And she helped produce the soundtrack with the music supervisor on the team for this movie. 
It's just gorgeous. And to see her in this context as an angel herself just makes the movie even better. Whitney Houston had some really tough times in her life. Uh, I think both of the movies that we've covered that she's been in, we've talked about the fact that she was high on set and she was going through a really tough time at the time. So she really lived through a lot. She leaves a very beautiful legacy behind. Her music is still just some of the best that you will hear. Her voice is still one of the best that we've ever had. So again, we love you, Whitney. We miss you so much. We know that you are an angel in whatever way that angels manifest, whether they are like Dudley and they come through and they help people when they are in need, or if they are a presence over there, up there, watching us like you, like Gregory, like Penny, whatever you're up to, thank you, thank you all for your gifts and sharing those with us and being part of such a wonderful project. Um, So in conclusion, I really love this movie. It holds a very sentimental place in my heart as a film that I grew up with that my family loves. It's not groundbreaking. It's not a groundbreaking fucking film, but it's not trying to be. It's just trying to be what it is, and it absolutely succeeds. Um, There's a part about um, Denzel as an angel that I absolutely love in this movie is that when he touches people, when he touches their hands, literally... Uh, you hear this wonderful theme from Hans Zimmer, who got nominated for an Oscar for the score of this movie. You hear this wonderful theme play, and you see these actors' reactions to him touching them. And first of all, I'm just like, I want to get touched like that, you know, have a feeling come over my whole body. But also, that's just a beautiful filmmaking moment or moments that happen in terms of everyone getting on board. The score, the actors, the story, it just really beautiful moments. The performances are all great in this movie. It's actually quite funny even after seeing it so many times and like I said Penny successfully nails making a film with an all black cast without much of her white gaze seeping in in fact one of the only white speaking characters in this movie is a white woman played by another Broadway legend named Charlotte Dambois who is wiling the whole time (laughs) it's so funny so there not only seems to be less of a white gaze on this movie there also seems to be a self awareness there which is great. It's so funny. So tis the season, y'all. Check this one out if you have not seen it. It is available to rent on Amazon and iTunes. Oh my life I had to fight. So, so, so the time has come yet again. The Walrus said for the You Better Act Award. And if you are unfamiliar with the You Better Act Award, the You Better Act Award is an award that I give out every week on Adventures in Black Cinema to a performance that I think deserves more love, more praise, and attention. So we give it that attention. So this week's You Better Act Award goes to, drumroll please, Nicole Bahare in Miss Juneteenth. 
Miss Juneteenth is a film that came out this year. It premiered again at the Sundance Film Festival in January. It was directed by Channing Godfrey Peoples, who is a wonderful black woman who um, made this film about this woman played by Nicole who uh, is a former Miss Juneteenth pageant winner in her local town in Texas. I think they're in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, And the Miss Juneteenth pageant in this area is a big deal in terms of paying reverence and respect to the holiday of Juneteenth and also, you know, pushing one of the young women in their community forward, giving them a platform, giving them a scholarship to a college, to an HBCU of their choice, etc. So it's a big deal in this town. And uh, Nicole, as this character named Turquoise Jones, you know, she is a former winner, but things did not go the way that everyone in the community thought they would go for her, as Turquoise is a very young woman who already has a 15-year-old daughter who she's trying to get to be a contestant for the Miss Juneteenth pageant this year. So there appears to be maybe... maybe at most, like... 15 to 17 years between Turquoise and her daughter. Um, And Nicole just gives such an amazing performance in this movie. I mean, the vibe that um, she has with the actor who plays her daughter is absolutely amazing and so natural. And um, there is so much presence and depth that comes from this performance. Nicole is a Juilliard graduate that does not surprise me. This is the kind of role that like Alfre Woodard or Viola Davis would have played when they were younger. And um, just Nicole brings so much gravitas to this performance. I hope she gets some end of the year love um, in terms of her performance because it's magnificent. You know, I hope... Some uh, critics love it. I hope it's on some critics' lists. You know, it's a, it's a very much a long shot for an Oscar or Golden Globe, kind of like um, Regina Hall for Support the Girls. But this is a performance that absolutely stands right up there with that in terms of just giving a fully fleshed out human performance. Um, you see so much in her eyes and she switches up so much when needed to be a mother and also a friend to her daughter. I think you can be both. And she switches her energy so well and so naturally for that. Her chemistry with Kendrick Sampson, who plays her uh, husband, um, is also amazing. They are a wonderful couple on screen. So attractive, so beautiful. And uh, Miss Juneteenth is definitely worth checking out. This movie says a lot about our culture, where we were and where we are headed and what values to hold on to and which ones to push forward in many ways. Um, great movie from this year. It is now streaming on Canopy and is also available to rent on Amazon and iTunes. So in closing, 
Some food for thought. This is a fun one. What are some of your family's favorite go-to holiday movies? I guess for this one, they don't have to be black, but it would be dope if they still were. You know, I do know that there are many holiday movies outside of the black experience that you could also talk about and love. Um, I personally love, like I said, those um, Claymation, Rankin-Bass holiday movies. A Year Without a Santa Claus is one of my favorites. I personally fucking love a Diva's Christmas Carol starring Vanessa Williams Diva R&B black version mostly black version of A Christmas Carol I love Muppet's Christmas Carol I love It's a Wonderful Life there are lots of good ones lots of good ones lots of good ones Um, so comment with yours on SFB Society per usual comment on our Instagram at Adventures in Black Cinema subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts as well Follow us on Spotify. Thank you so much to the team, Matt Mozzarella and our executive producer, Miss Amanda Seals. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast over this past year, over these past 23 episodes. It means the absolute world to me. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your constant support. And I hope to see you again next year when we are back on January 15th with How Stella Got Her Groove Back. Yes, I'm so excited for that. So excited for that. So until then, stay safe, stay black, and stay blessed. Thank you so much again, y'all. Peace and love, and have a wonderful holiday and a happy new year. Thank you all so much. Love you. Bye.